This is a sermon called The Unsettling Spirit of Pentecost that I preached on June 8, 2014 at Salem United Methodist Church in Cedar Rapids. I'm going to start by uh, giving you a little background information from the scripture reading today, which comes from the book of Acts. I'm going to talk about this period of time after Jesus is resurrected, but before he goes up to heaven, when he hangs out with his disciples and gives them some final instructions. Luke writes about that time both at the end of his gospel and also at the beginning of the book of Acts. He tells the story a little differently in each book, but in both versions he has Jesus communicate essentially the same message to his disciples. Now, these are important for later, so please listen carefully. Number one, Jesus says, What you thought about the Messiah is totally wrong. See, the disciples, like most other Jewish people, believe that the role of the Messiah is to throw off foreign occupation and restore Israel to the Jewish people. That is wrong, Jesus tells them. Instead, Jesus says that the Messiah was to suffer, die, and then rise on the third day. He says that this is written in the scriptures, and he, according to the story, goes through the scriptures with them and explains all this to the disciples. Now I should point out here that even though Luke often quotes scriptures from the Hebrew Bible, uh, like you'll hear later even in this story from the book of Acts, he doesn't do so when he's talking about Jesus sharing these scriptures with his disciples. And that probably is because those scriptures don't exist. Nevertheless, Jesus says that the scriptures do say the Messiah is to suffer, die, and then rise again on the third day. Okay, that's point number one. The second point, Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming and they need to stay in Jerusalem until it arrives. Number three, when the Holy Spirit does show up, it will give his disciples the power to take Jesus' message to the, re- to the rest of the world. What is Jesus' message? Well, according to Luke, the central piece of Jesus' message is that those who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins. So the disciples are to start in Jerusalem, but the message is meant for the whole world. So this really reiterates that instead of restoring the kingdom of Israel to political independence, the function of the Messiah is to save the world from God's judgment. This is a new deal that God is making with the world. So let's review the key points. Number one, the Messiah did not come to restore Israel's political independence. Number two, the Holy Spirit is coming, so stay in Jerusalem until it arrives. And number three, once it does come, it will give you the power to take the message of God's new deal to the rest of the world. So the disciples and the other followers stay in Jerusalem and wait. As they wait, the crowds of people who disappeared after Passover begin to return to Jerusalem again for the Festival of Weeks. The Festival of Weeks is called that because it comes seven weeks after Passover, Seven weeks is 49 days, and so this holiday falls on the 50th day after Passover, which is how it got another of its names, Pentecost. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50th. Like Passover, Pentecost was a pilgrimage holiday 
for which devout Jews from all over the region flocked to Jerusalem and its temple. The festival of weeks is also called the festival of reaping or the day of first fruits because in ancient Israel it marked the shift from the season of waiting to the season of harvest. In thanks for a good harvest, Jews came to Jerusalem to make grain offering to the temple. Pentecost also marks a moment of great importance in Jewish history. It commemorates the time when God, through Moses, established his covenant with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. It's appropriate, then, that if Luke's story marks a new deal, or a new covenant, between God and the world, it should happen at Pentecost. And so, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, Luke tells this story. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, in our own language we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, Ah, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suspect as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both, young, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There ends the reading. Okay, so do you remember those three things I told you earlier that Jesus said? Number one. The Messiah did not come to restore Israel's independence. Number two, the Holy Spirit is coming, so stay in Jerusalem until it arrives. And number three, once the Holy Spirit arrives, take the message of God's new deal to the rest of the world. Here's the thing about Luke's story. He wrote it some 50 to 60 years after Jesus died. And so he's looking back on those early days of the movement trying to both understand and explain why things happened.
the way they did. Rather than a news report, Luke is writing an interpretation of history. Now here are some of the things that he has to deal with as a historian. Number one, every Jew knew who the Messiah was supposed to be and what the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah would be a descendant of King David who would lead God's army to throw off foreign rule and reestablish God's kingdom. The kingdom of God, of course, was Israel, and its king would obviously be a descendant of David. Here's the thing. Jesus, whose disciples claimed he was the Messiah, was a laborer from Galilee, not a king. And he had a large following, but it was no army. However, his movement did grow and it became more bold as it approached Jerusalem. He led a disruptive protest that targeted trade at the temple, which was at that time the seat of religious power and also functioned as a sort of central bank for Jewish people. His challenge to temple authority, his growing popularity, and his advocacy for a kingdom of God rather than Caesar's empire were enough to get him branded as an insurrectionist. And so, instead of throwing off Roman rule, Jesus was arrested and executed by the Romans, along with two other alleged rebels. If he was any kind of messiah, according to what everyone understood that to mean, then Jesus was a failed messiah. Now here's an interesting twist. After that happened, instead of giving up when their messiah died, Jesus' followers turned to his brother James as the next leader of the movement. And the community did not disperse as we might expect, going home, feeling defeated. Instead, it stayed in Jerusalem under James's leadership. It waited for Jesus to return. We don't hear a lot about James in the Bible, but we do have sources from other writings that tell us about James. James, usually referred to as James the Just, was a man of deep piety. He believed in following God's laws and that we are not saved by faith alone, as Paul would suggest, but by works. True faith to James meant looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself from being polluted by the desire for worldly things. He was known for his tireless advocacy on behalf of the poor. James criticized the rich and powerful as much, maybe even more, than his brother Jesus and eventually he was killed under orders of the high priest Ananus, because he publicly denounced the high priest for his corruption and greed. Many people at the time actually believed that by killing James the Just, Ananus brought God's vengeance down upon Jerusalem and the temple, and that is why the Romans were allowed to destroy the city. Which leads me to the other major piece of history that Luke had to deal with when writing his gospel. A few years after James was killed, around the year 66, a full-scale Jewish revolt erupted against Rome. This led to a four-year war, which finally ended when the emperor's son, Titus, laid siege to Jerusalem until the city was too weak to resist the Roman army. Citizens inside Jerusalem were dying of starvation, and when they escaped, the Roman soldiers captured them 
and killed them. When the Romans finally did capture the city, breaking down the wall, they almost completely destroyed it. They burned as much as they could to the ground, and the temple was torn down almost completely. The city's inhabitants, the ones that survived, were enslaved by the Romans. So by the time Luke wrote his gospel, there was no temple, and like the rest of the Jewish population in Jerusalem, Jesus' community, which had been under James' leadership, was wiped out. Lucky for us, there was this crazy man named Saul, who later changed his name to Paul and called himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Long before the great Jewish revolt, Paul had started spreading his own version of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. He completely ignored most of the stories about Jesus and the things Jesus did while he was alive. He spoke very little about serving the poor, although he did collect money and send it to help the church do its work in Jerusalem. Paul did not criticize the rich and powerful very much. He did not emphasize the kingdom of God or seriously challenge the temple authority. To him, Jesus was not a political figure, but a divine being, and the main function of the Messiah for Paul was to suffer, die, and ascend to heaven so that all who believed in him would have their sins forgiven. Sound familiar? Luke was a follower of Paul. That's why most of the book of Acts is about Paul. It is also why his stories reflect Paul's theology. But really, what other Christian theology could have survived at that time after the Romans killed Jesus? Their definition of Messiah had to change. Remember those things the risen Jesus told his followers when he visited with them before ascending Jerusalem? Number one was the Messiah did not come to restore Israel's political independence. Still, as we've heard, even after Jesus died, his followers remained in Jerusalem. They were convinced that God was not done with them, that Jesus would return, that they must continue to serve the poor, to advocate for justice, and speak the truth to the powerful. The center of the Jewish world was Jerusalem. And if they were going to have an impact, that is where they believed God wanted them to be. So they stayed, and their community grew more influential. James's reputation grew to be so legendary that his death was recorded by the historian Josephus and lamented by many as a terrible sin against God. There was, however, one person who did not respect James, and that was Paul. Paul argued vehemently with James over the issue of Jewish law. Paul knew that if he was going to convert Gentiles to followers of Christ, he could not expect them to begin following Jewish laws. Instead, he preached that faith, not works, was what mattered. When believers have faith in Christ, Paul argued, their sins are forgiven and they are justified before God whether or not they follow Jewish law. The Holy Spirit, sometimes called the Spirit of Christ by Paul, enters into them and makes them a new creation. Death no longer has power over them. James did not believe this. James was a Jew, and his brother was a Jew. He believed that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. He believed that faith with works was out, without works was dead, and that Paul's false teachings needed to be corrected. There was even one story, not in the Bible, but written about later, 
about James and the man he calls his enemy. This enemy was later identified as Paul. According to this story, and of course we don't know whether it was true or not, according to this story, Paul and James were having an argument in the temple. The fight became so violent that it ended up with Paul throwing James down the stairs to the point where James was injured and had to be carried away by his friends. You can read about this in the book Zealot by Reza Aslan. So there was this historical tension that Luke had to deal with. Jerusalem was the center of the Jesus movement, but Paul held quite a bit of sway outside that city in the communities that he established. Luke was writing long after both James and Paul were dead, and Jerusalem had fallen. So what he does is neatly sweeps all of that tension under the rug with that one bit of instruction from Jesus, when Jesus says, The Holy Spirit is coming, so stay in Jerusalem until it arrives. In that sentence, Luke acknowledges both that the movement was based in Jerusalem, but also that Paul's doctrine of the Holy Spirit is what introduced Jesus to the rest of the world. And of course, after the destruction of Jerusalem, it's Paul's Gentile churches which survive. It's up to them to spread the message. Enter Luke's story about a violent wind, tongues of fire, and the disciples speaking in their listeners' native languages. God is indeed creating a new covenant with humanity, and it is not limited to any one group of people, but all who claim, but all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. History is written through hindsight, and the Gospels were no different. Luke knew that the story of Jesus survived because of Paul's teachings. He knew that Paul had made Jesus accessible to the Gentiles by stripping him of his Jewish humanity, his uncomfortable political and social teachings, and instead preaching about Jesus, the risen Savior. Luke believed in and celebrated Christ the Savior, and he gladly told about the power of the Holy Spirit. But in spite of his loyalty to Paul's doctrine, Luke also knew that to fully understand their faith, eventually these Gentile converts would have to meet the human Jesus as well. The walking, talking, loving, healing, rabble-rousing Jew from Galilee who gave his life in order to speak truth to those in power. Today we look back on the story of Jesus with much, much more hindsight than either James or Paul had. This has both its advantages and its disadvantages. On the one hand, looking back on that argument, I have to agree with Paul that I really don't think we need to follow ancient Jewish purity laws in order to have a positive relationship with God. We should understand that God's love is much more accessible than that. On the other hand, I have to agree with James somewhat about works. We've all seen the damage that can be done when Christians feel justified by faith, even though their actions go against everything Jesus stood for, as if simply invoking the name of Jesus means that they can do whatever they want. In the end, I think that one thing this hindsight gives us is the realization that these followers of Jesus were human. 
And as unsettling as it is to think about them fighting, arguing, about things changing because of historical circumstances, as I thought more about it, I came to the conclusion that maybe that's the gift of Pentecost. Maybe the real gift that Pentecost gives us is its acknowledgement that sometimes the story of Jesus has to change if it's going to survive. The same could be said about Christian faith in general. The faith we have in one community, or one point in history, or even at one point in our own lives, is not going to work for every other situation in which we find ourselves. So rather than grasping tightly to the truth we know, I think it's a better approach to assume that God is not done with all of us yet. What we believe is true may not work for others where they are. It might not even work for us tomorrow. But the Bible does promise that those who seek will find what they need. Oftentimes the story of Pentecost is used to demonstrate that our task as Christians is to take Jesus' message of salvation to the world. And so we're pushed to go out and share our truth with others. But what if we look at it from the other point of view? What if we're more honest about our usual reaction to those who try to teach us a new truth? Maybe then we would claim the role of the person in this story who sneers or scoffs at the unfamiliar, who makes jokes to dismiss a challenge to our way of thinking. One thing I do know for certain is that if God acts in our lives, it's seldom the way that we expect God to. So what I would leave you with today is a challenge. I want you to ask yourself this. Am I holding on so tightly to my own point of view that I am not allowing God to teach me something new? Am I able to make room for the stranger who brings me a message that I did not even know I needed to hear? Am I willing to let this life surprise me? Or must everything be predictable and controlled? Most importantly, let's ask ourselves this. Is God done with me yet? Or do I still have some growing to do? You can be a James. You can be a Paul. You can be a Luke who's just trying to understand it all. No matter who you are, my prayer is that you are willing to let God work on you a little bit more. Because, really, if you're done growing, well, what are you still doing here? <laughs>